This is Alien Logic, Part 2. Now, that was dialogue from the beginning and the end of the 2016 movie, Arrival, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. And the movie Arrival is really an illustration of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Now, Edward Sapir was an American anthropologist and linguist. He was born in 1884 and died in 1939. And what he was really interested in was the relativity of language and how language influences culture. But in 1954, one of his grad students, Harry Hogier, coined the term Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And the central idea of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is that language functions not just as a way to report experience, but also, and more importantly, as a way of defining experience for the speaker. So the way we talk controls the way we think. And Amy Adams gives the perfect sort of explanation of it when Forrest Whitaker, who's like the colonel who sort of represents the military, plays a flawless military idiot. Now there are some military idiots in the military, and that's a fact. But Forrest Whitaker plays the dumbest colonel I think I've ever seen, and he did it flawlessly. But Forrest Whitaker is about ready to offer the job to translate the language of the aliens that just arrived. Amy Adams says, I need this and this and this and this much time and blah, blah, blah. And Forrest Whitaker's like, well, I'm going to ask somebody else then. And so she says, okay, well, hey, when you go talk to him, ask him what he thinks the Sanskrit for war is and means. And then later when he asks the guy and then comes back to Amy Adams, he says he said disagreement. And she's like, eh, wrong. It means want more cows. And that illustrates the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis because, you know, Sanskrit, you know, in early human history, you know, they'd go to war over something like wanting their cows or wanting somebody else's cows. And when she gets the job and goes and translates the language of the aliens, which are these great big octopus-looking creatures, which in some ways makes sense and is kind of a throwback to the real prime directive where we said that if it only takes time for monkeys to turn into humans and humans to go into space, 
case, then in any world where there's a different species that's apex on a particular planet, it's only a matter of time before they evolve and go into space. And so in any sufficiently Earth-like planet where dinosaurs, the velociraptors, the truodon, the opposable thumb and a big brain and language, any Earth-like planet not hit by a meteor that wipes out all the dinosaurs, we conclude that it's likely that the truodon or its successor in evolution goes interstellar. So legit could be lizard people in space. No kidding. Just from what we know of the biological history of our planet. But in this particular movie, they're big octopuses looking things. And that could be possible in any sufficiently Earth-like planet where octopi become apex and go interstellar. Anyway, that's not what we're here talking about, but that's what the movie shows. But as Amy Adams begins to learn the octopus language, it starts to affect her thinking because it illustrates the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that our language affects the way we think. And she starts seeing her life through time because that's the effect that the octopus's language has on the way humans think. And so she'll have flashbacks of things that haven't happened yet. And you can kind of figure it out just by looking at it because during the regular part of the movie, she's not wearing a wedding ring, but in some of her, you think in their flashbacks, but then you realize their flash forwards where she's wearing a wedding ring and she has a kid and the kid dies. And, and if you're not paying attention, you might think, oh, well, this happened in the past. And so she's like sad about it or whatever, but she's never really sad about it. And she doesn't talk about her kid. When you see she's got a wedding ring on, at some point in the movie, you figure out that all those flashbacks are actually flash forwards. And if you're paying attention, you piece together that Jeremy Renner, who's her physicist colleague in the translation and communication with the arrived aliens, is going to be the father. And you know from all these flash forwards that happen sort of closer to the beginning of the movie that their kid is going to get sick and die and there's nothing they can do about it. And so that's where the dialogue about if you knew how things were going to end, would you change it? Would you do something different? Or would you just go through with it? And so when he says, hey, you want to have a baby? baby at the end of the movie she knows that the baby's gonna die she knows it's gonna end their marriage in the future and she agrees to do it anyway because life is precious and as an aside i don't think there's actually any free will i think as conscious beings i think we're just understanding the choices we've already made as we've as we move through time because that's in my mind that's the only way that quantum echoes can exist because there has to be a craft in the future that actually does spin up its anti-gravity field and goes massless and that's why we see our future navy flying around in our navy's training areas and those are the ufos that they see so i think and i'll maybe we'll have another episode about this but i think it really means that there's actually no free will we just learn to understand the reasons that we've already made the choices that we've made or the we learn why the things that have already happened in the future and all time exists everywhere simultaneously all at once but people of faith can take hard in that because you know well christians believe that their god is omniscient and that the end is known from the beginning and so that is consistent with a lot of faiths but anyway i don't want to get too far in the weeds on that that's not what this episode is about this episode is about alien logic and how we can derive and conclude that aliens must exist and that is a fact and in alien logic part one we kind of built up to some stuff we talked about some foundational principles and all that kind of stuff and normally when you discuss something are you going to explain particular conclusion what you'll do is you just lay some groundwork and then you say well then if this and then if that then we conclude this and the groundwork that we laid in part one was in a sufficiently earth-like environment 
The things that happen on Earth would happen there too, because matter is energy and energy follows the laws of physics. Specifically, energy follows the stationary action principle. We also talked about how it's necessarily true that anything that's possible in an infinite environment, in an infinite universe, anything that's possible is inevitable in an infinite universe. Because even if it's a 0.000001% chance times that infinite number of chances, you're going to get an infinite number of true outcomes, and that is a fact. We talked about how scientists are so full of bias that it's really kind of tragically comical. Many are so committed to the notion that aliens are just for people with tinfoil hats and all that craziness. And even Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And the truth is, is that nothing is extraordinary. It's just either true or it's not. And it doesn't require any kind of special evidence. It just requires evidence. And that is a fact. But Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and even Carl Sagan have spent their whole lives going around talking about how aliens are crazy and they don't exist. And that in and of itself is a form of bias called cognitive dissonance. And what that means is, is that they're going to be very, very reluctant to ever change their opinion. They are perhaps the most biased folks that you'll meet because they've already psychologically committed to the notion that aliens don't exist. And I guess they think we're all alone in the universe. So we explored that bias a little bit. But it doesn't take extraordinary evidence to prove anything. It just takes evidence and that is a fact. If you're not emotional devoted to a certain outcome that you've already jumped up and down and gone on camera and talked about. Finally, we talked about concrete. We talked about how it's made of aggregate, sand, water, and cement. When it erodes, it doesn't erode smoothly. It spalls really roughly because the crystalline structures that lock all of the components together, when they break off, it makes really gnarly, rough surfaces. Anybody who's driven or walked on an old concrete surface knows that for a fact, and that is a fact. But the one thing I kind of forgot to talk about that I wish I did, so I'm going to talk about it now, is magnetic fields. So when you take a magnet and you rotate a coil of wire around the magnet, it will induce a current. It will induce an electrical current in the wire. And when you induce an electrical current, you also generate an electromagnetic field through space. It's just what happens, and that is a fact. An electric current generates an electromagnetic field. And in the Earth, it's a field that arcs out of the top of the Earth, out of the North Pole, curves around the outside of the Earth, and goes back in on the South Pole. And what a magnetic field does is it operates to shield the Earth from cosmic rays in the solar wind. All the charged particles coming off of the sun ricochet off that field, and that's what the northern lights are. You see some of those charged particles kind of get hung up between the bands of those magnetic field lines, and that's what that sort of arcing, flaming green light is. And that magnetic field is what protects the Earth's atmosphere and liquid water from getting blasted off of the surface of the Earth, and that is a fact. And the Earth's magnetic field is actually weakening fairly quickly. It's dropped about it's dropped about 30% of its strength in the last few hundred years, and it began weakening about 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago was the 1,000 BC, and that was about the same time that King Saul was killed by the Philistines and King David took over if you're familiar with Bible times. About 500 years before that, Moses had led the tribes of Judah's exodus out of Egypt. And that's sort of the dawn of monotheism, which is where previously all of the civilizations that had existed on earth up until that point were polytheistic, meaning that they had many gods. And Christianity was really the first, or Judaism was really the first religion, or one of the first religions that only had one god. So 
the, the stronger the magnetic field, so the magnetic field will be stronger the greater the difference of the spin of the Earth's crust and the Earth's core. If the Earth's core was spinning the opposite way of the crust, then you would have a really, really strong magnetic field. If the core was spinning just slower than the crust, then you would still have magnetic field, but it wouldn't be quite as strong. And there's a lot of talk about how the magnetic poles of the Earth's magnetic field have flip-flopped. And that could happen if the crust ever started spinning a different way, or it could happen if the core inside flipped upside down. So there's kind of a lot of different ways that could happen, but the bottom line is, is that the weakening Earth's magnetic field has a lot to do with the core either catching up to the velocity of the crust or getting hung up by the gnarly sort of edges inside there, inside the, the mantle of the Earth, um, and bringing the velocity essentially of the core and the, and the crust closer together. Anyway, the main takeaway is, is that the greater the difference velocity between the spinning of the crust, the outside of the earth, and the spinning of the core means the stronger magnetic field that the earth will have, and that the greater degree of protection that the magnetic field will offer to protect the earth's atmosphere and water. And the earth is slowing down, the earth's crust spin is slowing down, the magnetic field is weakening, but strangely the planet Mars crust is speeding up. We'll talk about that some other time. But just think of yourself as if you were a terraforming alien. You definitely want to make sure that the Earth or that the planet that you were terraforming was spinning sufficiently to have a strong magnetic field. And just for reference, the planet Mercury is spinning at about 4 miles an hour. The planet Venus is spinning at about 7 miles an hour. The planet Mars is spinning about 510 miles per hour and it's speeding up. And Earth is spinning about 1,100 miles an hour and the slowing down. That is a fact. And that was sort of the take for Alien Logic Part 1. But now I'm going to mix it up. Now I'm going to change and now you'll see why I brought up the whole thing with Arrival and seeing the future and things through time. Because this episode, we're taking an Abelian approach. An Abelian is a commutative property. You see a lot in math. And what it means is, is that if you have two operations, there's Abelian symmetry there if you can do them in any order. So like plus and minus. So if you got 10 and you're gonna add five to it and subtract three, you're gonna get 12. Now you can take 10 and you can subtract three to seven, and then you could add five and get to 12. Or you could take 10, add five, get to 15, then subtract three and get 12. So you can do the plus and minus in any order and you get to the same answer 12. That's Abelian symmetry. Doesn't matter what order you do it in. And in the same way, alien logic, I think what you'll see is we can build up to something like we did in part one, or we can go Abelian on it. And if it's true, if it's right, then we can lead with our conclusion. And if our conclusion is true, we will be able to deduce things that we didn't know were there that must also be true in the past. And when we go and check and see if that's right, if it is true, then it shows that our initial conclusion that we said first has to be right. And so you can think of it like if there was a machine that covered fruit and chocolate, right? There's a conveyor belt, you put strawberries on it, it goes into the machine, the machine covers it in chocolate and then chocolate covered strawberries come out of the machine so there's a linear time there there's a linear timeline plain strawberries go on the conveyor belt the conveyor belt goes in the machine and then chocolate covered strawberries come out of the machine and the foundational notion here is that in order for something to be true there must be a Bayesian symmetry there must be causality between the end state and the initial conditions and so in this example alien logic part one was we put strawberries on the conveyor belt they go into the machine and then 
and chocolate-covered strawberries come out of the machine. Therefore, we conclude that chocolate-covered strawberries come out of the machine. But with an Abelian twist on it, we can just announce our conclusions that chocolate-covered strawberries come out of the machine. And then we predict, and then we falsify that by saying, well, if we're right that chocolate-covered strawberries come out of the machine, let's look back in the fossil record and we must find that strawberries went into the machine in the past. And when we dig around and we find out that, yep, look, look, strawberries went into the machine, then that confirms our conclusion. The chocolate-covered strawberries came out of the machine. But it's falsifiable because we could also prove ourselves wrong if we look back in the fossil record or we look into the past or something and we find that she was cherries that went in. Well, then we've disproven our conclusion. We've shown that those two operators don't harmonize. There's no Abelian symmetry there. So we'd know that our conclusion was wrong. So in Alien Logic Part 1, we talked about convergent evolution and how any sufficiently Earth-like planet in the universe, and there's billions of them, or near infinite number of them, because anything that's possible is inevitable in an infinite universe, and that's a fact. So what we said was, was that any sufficiently Earth-like planet anywhere in the universe, which could be up to 14 billion years old, and we're only 4 billion years old, 4.5 billion, or 4.6 billion years old, that there are more advanced, further evolved, millions and billions of years more evolved humans. And so our conclusion slash hypothesis that we want to test, which is the strawberries coming out of the machine, so to speak, our conclusion is, is that a more advanced interstellar species of humans that are further evolved, that started somewhere else, we just call them greys, found Earth to be habitable or terraformable, and terraformed it to plant human colonies. They terraformed it by hitting it with a meteor to get rid of the dinosaurs so that their human colonies wouldn't be snacks for dinosaurs. And they planted some species, planted a bunch of mammal species, and just kind of let them go. And then 65 million years later came back and planted humans. And they dropped us off probably maybe 10,000 years ago. Between 10,000 and 7,000 years ago. So if that's the equivalent of our strawberries coming out of the machine, now knowing that, we have to be able to establish a Bailey symmetry between that outcome and what we know would have had to have gone essentially into the machine, right? So if that were true, we'd have to see a complete discontinuity in the fossil record, wouldn't we? There would have to be essentially all the way up to a certain point in the very recent recent past, there would have to be like no mammals anywhere, or no humans anywhere, and then all of a sudden, poof, human, where nothing existed before that, and no reasonable sort of evolution of the fossil record or anything shows the, the natural progression and eventual appearance of humans. And that's exactly what's in the fossil record, and that is a fact. There's only two mammal species on Earth with Rh plus and minus blood. You know, you can be A positive, or A negative, or O negative. Well, the positives and negatives, those features of the blood type only occur in two species, humans and chimps, and that's it, and that too is a fact. And there's no evolutionary trace in between humans and chimps. That too was a fact, and that's what they refer to as the missing link. And some of the biggest, most important ancient structures, we have to ask ourselves the question, like, would it be possible for those ancient humans to build those structures? And in particular, you think of the Great Pyramids of Egypt, 
at Giza. And we know those pyramids. Inside those pyramids are huge granite beams in the king's chamber. And granite is a Mohs hardness of seven. In order to cut granite, you need something to even scratch it. You need something that is harder than a Mohs hardness of seven. Iron is a Mohs hardness of five. You essentially need a diamond carbide blade to cut granite. In a Bronze Age civilization, where bronze is really what they had, and that's a hardness of three, could never have cut the materials could never have cut granite and the materials that were used to build the pyramid. And did you know there's not even any documentation about the actual construction of the pyramids? That's a fact. There's like a couple pieces of parchment that may have been related to the pyramids. There's actually no record of who built the pyramids or when or how. And that is a fact. And the fact is that a Bronze Age society couldn't have possibly cut the materials or quarried any materials used to build the pyramids. And even stranger, in 2008, Researchers from the University of Drexel took an electron microscope and examined the molecular structure of the stone that was used to construct the pyramids. You know what they found? They found that it was concrete. It was a more advanced polymer concrete than the Portland cement concrete that we use today. And you don't have to take my word for it. Google NSF concrete pyramids and you'll see the National Science Foundation research on the National Science Foundation website, the United States National Science Foundation's website that shows the University of Drexel research where they show the crystalline structure of the concrete that holds together the aggregate that built the pyramids and that is a fact and egyptologists will lose their minds if you bring this up because there is no record of any use of any kind of concrete all they have are these silly diagrams of you know people rolling giant stones you know on bamboo and shit stupid <laughs> it's hilarious but yeah there's just it's just absolutely no explanation and that's a fact then there's the Great Wall of China. The Great Wall of China, they say, was built in 220 BC when the global population was about 100 million people. Now, even if China was one-eighth of the entire global population back then, that's 12.5 million people, which is about the same number of people that inhabit the state of Pennsylvania in the United States today. Now, 12.5 million people, even if none of them had to make food or watch the kids, there is no way that 12 million people can build 13,100 miles of granite Great Wall of China. 13,100 miles, 50 feet tall, 30 feet wide, made out of granite through the mountains. And this is granite, they don't have the tools to cut or quarry because nothing would be made for another thousand years that could cut that stone. And they thought, no, well, maybe if the whole population of Pennsylvania was really focused on just building the wall, maybe they'd be able to do it. You know what I mean? And so I thought I'd grok it. And I asked Grok, which is Twitter AI, I said, you know, were there any wars in China around 220 BC? Because I figured if there was no wars and all they were doing was like just focusing on building the wall, maybe it could happen. But Grok said, around 220 BC, China was in the midst of a significant period of unification and warfare. This period, known as the Warring States period from 475 to 221 BC, was characterized by intense battles and political intrigue as seven major states vied for control of the region. And during this time, the state of Qin emerged as the dominant power and began its conquering its rivals one by one. In 230 BC, Qin conquered the Han state followed
followed by the states of Zhao in 228 BC and Wei 225 BC, Chu in 223 BC, Yan and Dai both in 222 BC, and finally in 221 BC, Qin defeated the state of Qi, unifying China under the rule of the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. The Warring States period was a time of great upheaval and change as states adopted new military strategies and technologies to gain an advantage over their rivals. Iron weapons and crossbows became more common, and the use of cavalry and chariots became more widespread. The period also saw the rise of influential military strategists and philosophers such as Sun Tzu, who wrote the famous treatise, The Art of War. In conclusion, the period around 220 BC in China was indeed marked by significant warfare as the Qin state sought to unify the region under its rule. So yeah, no fucking way could they build the Great Wall of China during that time, and that's a fact. Now, a skeptic could legitly point out that, well, essentially, I could restate your argument and say that because history is wrong about who built the pyramids and who built the Great Wall of China, you're just saying that because we don't know who did it, it must have been aliens. And that's absolutely not what we said. That's not what we said at all. What we said was, our hypothesis was that in an earth, sufficiently Earth-like environment, humans eventually evolved, and because the universe is 14 billion years old and the Earth is only 4.6 billion years old, humans evolved elsewhere first and then came here to Earth and deposited a colony of humans on Earth, terraformed Earth to make it habitable, and then dropped us off with some starter structures. And the aliens that dropped us off were sort of gods to these polytheistic first-in-history uh, cultures. And then when they all left, the entire world sort of, you know, they steered the world towards a monotheistic religion. And what we said was a bunch of things had to be true. There had to be a complete discontinuity, an unexplainable void of lack of human evolution, which is exactly the opposite of what we have in the dinosaurs. If you look at the dinosaurs, it's a really longitudinal, very smooth evolutionary trace from the very beginning of life all the way till dinosaurs. And then 65 million years later, they all get zorched and then humans pop up out of nowhere. The truth is, is not a shred of evidence, at least that I can find, disproves any of what I just said. And the harder I look, the more evidence that's just right in front of our faces corroborates it all. And that is a fact. Unfortunately, I got to cut this episode a little bit short. I really wanted to do some more. I wanted to essentially take down some experts, you know, who've said some things that I think are just ridiculous. Uh, but what I'm doing right now is I'm not just content to look at history and go, oh, look, this abelian symmetry proves that what I'm saying is right and there's nothing to disprove it. I'm actually coming up with the mechanism by which an interstellar species could actually get here. Because when you think about, you know, if you got to travel like 50 light years from where Wherever these, you know, interstellar humans came from, you know, then every you'd have to be nomadic, right? You'd have to, you know, begin your journey thousands of years ago, and and uh, you know, I mean, that's just it's not practical. And so I think I've sorted out how it actually happens, the physics of anti gravity, and I'm building my fifth prototype. And if it works, I'm going to turn it on. I'm going to set it on a scale. I'm going to turn it on, and it's going to get much much lighter. And if that's the truth, if that happens, then I will have figured out anti gravity. And if it works like I think it does, then it's explains interstellar travel, how we don't need to become nomadic to travel interstellar. <clears throat> and yeah, it's time travel. It's pretty crazy. But I think I've got it figured out. And if by the end of the week, um, if I don't, then I'll, I'll tell you. I'm going to tell you either way what, what it's all about, how it works and all that stuff. And hopefully I by the next episode, I'll have some really good news and some hard data that will uh, that'll prove it. Um, so wish me luck. Mm-hmm.